Hello, today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20. In our last session in Revelation 19, we saw how the Antichrist and the false prophet were thrown into hell after the battle of Armageddon, but it raises the question, what about the devil? I've mentioned before about the fact that the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet all represent an unholy trinity. And so toward the end of the battle of Armageddon, when Jesus comes to reign, we read that the Antichrist and the false prophet were both thrown into hell, but God has something special in mind for Satan. Before we jump into this, why don't we take a minute and pray. Father, once again, we just thank you that you have revealed your word to us. We're just grateful for that. We also thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be afraid of what's coming. We thank you, Lord, that we can even celebrate these things because it's gonna represent a new start, a new beginning. And, um, and we're just grateful for that. Give us understanding as we explore uh, this chapter here today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin reading in verse one of chapter 20, where we read, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time." Now let me stop for a moment. My study Bible has a note that explains what the abyss was. It goes this way, the bottomless pit or the depths of the sea, it's the prison for Satan and demons. And so it's called a bottomless pit or sometimes it's a reference to the depths of the sea. I can't imagine uh, in my wildest imagination what a bottomless pit would be like. Uh, and I don't know whether or not we're to take this literally. If you think about it for a moment, the, that, that uh, the devil would be cast into this place where he would fall and keep falling and keep falling. It may just be a reference to the fact that it is so deep that nothing or no one could ever escape from it. And of course, God seals this as well. So he's gonna be bound there for a thousand years. Now, Satan in this passage is referred to as being a dragon and he's also called the ancient serpent. And my mind immediately goes to the Garden of Eden when I think about that, how the, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, what's kind of interesting to me about this, and, and this is a little bit of speculation on my part, it's a kind of a side note I would throw in here and it might even be a crazy idea, but when you go back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they disobeyed God, they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, you remember that God said to Eve from now on when you go to have children that it's gonna be painful. And then God said to Adam that because of this, because of what you've done, there's now gonna be a curse on, on creation and work is now going to be work. But then God said something interesting to the serpent. He said, from now on, you are going to have to travel on your belly and you're gonna eat the dust of the earth. And because of that, many people have speculated that perhaps this serpent in the Garden of Eden was actually more like a lizard or a dragon. 
And then after this temptation took place, it ended up being cursed to an existence where it had to slither on the ground. And it's possible that that is the reason why the devil is called both a dragon and a serpent. Now, there's a lot of questions related even to what happened in the Garden of Eden. Did Satan possess a real lizard or serpent? Is that what happened? Or did Satan just take on that form? In either case, there was a curse that was pronounced on that creature, and that's where we end up with snakes. And the devil is called both of these things, a dragon and a serpent. Let me mention a few other things about the verses we just read. First, an angel from heaven binds the devil, and this suggests to me that it's an incredibly powerful angel because when you think about Satan, he seems to have been at the very pinnacle of the angelic realm, and yet this, serp, or this uh, angel is allowed to bind the devil. I suspect it was either Michael or Gabriel. Also, I note the fact that the devil's gonna be bound with a chain for a thousand years, and I've tried to imagine what that would be like, that he won't even have the freedom of movement during this time. Third, I wanna mention that I take the thousand years to be literal years, that Satan is actually going to be bound during the millennial reign of Christ. Part of the reason I think this is because my understanding of when Adam and Eve walked the earth was 6,000 years ago. It's as if humanity has had an opportunity to do things their way for 6,000 years, and then Jesus shows up at the beginning of the seventh millennium. Six, of course, is the number of humanity. Seven is the number of deity. And Jesus is gonna reign for that thousand years. Now, I recognize that some people have this idea that the millennial kingdom is just symbolic. You know, they use the verse that says one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And so they say, see, to God, it's, it's the same. But I believe that this is a literal thousand years. And I think it's significant that Jesus is going to be allowed to reign during this thousand year period without the influence of the devil. Because as we'll see in a little bit here, toward the end, or right at the end of this millennial kingdom, the devil is gonna be released for a short period of time. But for a thousand years, you're gonna have a situation where Jesus is gonna reign as the benevolent ruler over the whole earth. And he is gonna do literally everything right. And yet, as we see as the story continues at the end of this millennial kingdom, humanity is still going to turn against Christ. Now, the devil's the one that's going to tempt them to do that because he's gonna be released for a short period of time. But to me, it reveals the, the, the sinfulness of humanity. It's like it's the final indictment. It answers the question, what would happen? Would people still rebel if the one leading the world was just and upright and did everything right? And as we see, they'll still rebel against him. And all of this, I think, is going to be followed by this final judgment. Now, what we find out is that during this millennial kingdom, there are going to be other kings around. There'll be people, they'll be multiplying. And I think some of these kings and some of these people during this thousand-year reign are gonna be feigning obedience. It won't be true obedience to Christ. And all of this will be revealed at this final battle that's gonna take place. Let's keep reading, though, beginning in verse four. 
Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. And so this is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Who are these people that are on these thrones? Well, I think they are Christians. I think we are these people. We are ones who are going to serve in Jesus' millennial kingdom as judges and rulers. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verses 28 and 29, I assure you, he said, in the messianic age, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. I think this is us. This is a description of Christians. And so we are going to reign with Christ. Paul said something similar to this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. He said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Those who persevere in the faith, they'll reign with Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses two and three, we read, or don't you know that the saints, and this is a reference to believers, it's not a reference to those who are dead, but believers in Christ, don't you know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters. And so I think we're gonna be part of this millennial kingdom and, and maybe even part of the final judgment, reigning with Christ. But let's continue reading, beginning in the middle of verse four. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshiped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, and as we'll see in a little bit, the rest of the dead is a reference to unbelievers. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, we know that when Jesus Christ returns in the air, when the trumpet is sounded, that we're going to join Jesus in the air. Paul talked about this when he was writing to the Thessalonians, how those who have already passed away will first be raised up, and then those who are alive when Jesus returns will join him in the air. And it's at that point that we're going to get our new bodies. This is the first resurrection. And Paul described this event in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52. And if you know about 1 Corinthians 15, it is a chapter about the resurrection, but beginning here in verse 50, we read, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the blink of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. 
And so when Jesus comes back, in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're gonna get our new bodies. And this is the thing that will allow us to reign with Christ in this millennial kingdom in very much the same way that I think angels serve God right now, will be serving Christ with these new and glorified bodies, a body that will be very much like Jesus had when he rose again from the dead. Now, apparently, in the verses we just read from Revelation 20, those who die for their faith during this seven-year tribulation period, those who refuse to get the mark of the beast, those who suffer for Christ during this time, it appears will receive a special honor in terms of ruling with, with Christ in the millennial kingdom. In the second half of verse six, we read the second death has no power over them. Of course, the second death refers to uh, hell, as we'll see in a minute here. It says the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of the Messiah, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, again, I mentioned earlier that as this section began, we see that we're going to be reigning with Christ, but I think a special emphasis is given to these ones who die during the seven-year period. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, then we read about the second death that we're all going to escape. It says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so when the passage says we will not have to go through the second death, that's what that is a reference to. Now again, I think we're all gonna reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. But I think it will matter our role in that kingdom based on our faithfulness to Christ. I think those who are most faithful to Christ in this life will be given a greater responsibility in the millennial kingdom. Part of the reason I believe this has to do with the parables that Jesus told when he walked the earth. Some of his parables dealt with this millennial kingdom. And he referred to the fact that when he comes back, that some are going to be given a higher honor. For example, you may remember the parable Jesus told about a landowner that went away for a period of time, and before he left, he entrusted some of his servants with talents. And talents were a monetary value. It's not talking about the, the talents we have, but a monetary value. And he gave one of his servants 10 talents. He gave one five talents. And he gave one person one talent. And then he was gone for a period of time. And when he came back, he wanted to see what people did with the talents that he had given them. And the one who had been given 10 talents had doubled it so that there were 20 talents. And the one who had been given five talents also doubled it and was given five talents, or doubled it to five more, to 10. And then the one who had been given one talent, you remember, buried it. Well, what did Jesus say in that parable happened to those who were faithful with the talents? Well, the person who had been given 10 talents who multiplied it the landowner said, because you were faithful with that, I'm gonna allow you to rule over 10 cities. And so you see, it was a subtle change that took place. You're gonna now rule over all these cities because you were faithful. The one who had been given five was told, you're going to rule over five cities. And I think the same thing is going to 
be true when Jesus comes back based on our faithfulness in this life when he returns. I think we're going to be given responsibility in the millennial kingdom that's gonna be appropriate to the faithfulness that we showed Christ in this life. But let's keep reading in verse, beginning in verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up over the surface of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city, of course that's Jerusalem. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now once again, as I think about this, I'm just amazed to think that the people that are gonna live during the wonderful reign of Jesus Christ during this millennium, why would they want to rebel against him at the end? You realize, by the way, during this millennial kingdom, things are going to be different. Jesus described the fact that the lion is gonna lie down with the lamb. He described the fact that people were gonna live longer again, kind of like back in Genesis, and they're gonna be multiplying. And so I think the earth is going to be repopulated during this millennial kingdom. But you see, again, the rebellious nature of humanity At the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be released for a brief period of time. He is once again gonna rally the kings of the earth and the leaders of the earth and the people of the earth and united as one, they're gonna come against Christ and against his kingdom, which is located in Jerusalem. Now, one interesting thing, again, about this as I read about it is to realize, again, during the millennial kingdom, that there are going to be other kings and there are going to be other rulers. And so Jesus is going to be uh, ruling in Jerusalem, but there will be other leaders out there and they're gonna rally together against Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, in the section we just read in Revelation, there's a reference to Gog and Magog and most commentators immediately go back to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. If you go to Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll read about Gog and Magog, and there's been a lot of discussion about exactly who is Gog, who is Magog. Some have suggested that that one of those terms refers to a, a worldwide leader, perhaps, and the other refers to the people. Others have tried to identify this as maybe a place in Russia, which that mostly has been dispelled. Others have viewed those nations as Islamic nations, that are gonna come against Israel. What I want us to realize is that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not what we're reading about here in Revelation 20. Ezekiel 38 and 39, when it talks about Gog and Magog, it is a reference to the battle of Armageddon, which is gonna take place prior to the millennial kingdom. So why does God refer to this final battle then using the terms Gog and Magog. Well, I think this battle that takes place prior to the millennial kingdom is gonna be a model for the same battle that's gonna take place at the end of the millennial kingdom. In other words, it's a type. 
and and a description of a similar type of battle against God's people, against Jerusalem. And so in some ways, I view Ezekiel 38 and 39 as being another one of those passages that maybe has a double fulfillment. Dr. Walvoord writes about this. He believes that Gog and Magog are just symbolic here. He writes, it may be that the terms have taken on a symbolic meaning much as one speaks of a person's Waterloo, which historically refers to the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, Belgium, but has come to represent any great disaster. And I think that's probably how this is being used in Revelation. Gog and Magog is just a reference to the nations of the earth gathered once again against Christ and his kingdom. Now, we read at the end of this battle, or really, the, it's, it's really no battle at all because God is gonna destroy the nations in a moment with fire from heaven. We read then at this point that the devil is gonna be thrown into the lake of fire or hell, where he's gonna join the Antichrist and the false prophet who are, who are already there, and all three of them are going to be tormented forever and ever. Continuing in verse 11, though, we, we learn that the final destiny of those who are part of Christ's kingdom is gonna be the same as the devil's destiny. We read that hell, of course, was created for the devil and his angels, but those who align themselves with the devil will join him in his eternal destiny, in his eternal judgment. And so continuing in verse 11, we read, then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it, and this is Jesus. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. Now, there are other writers in the Bible that describe this fact that heaven and earth are gonna flee in just a moment. Now, this to me, by the way, speaks of how powerful Jesus is. You think for a moment that at the end of this final battle, it's, it's really time for Jesus to establish the eternal order of things. And the first thing he does is he just shows up and at his very presence, heaven and earth just flee. Peter wrote about this though in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise the elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. It'll all pass away in a moment. Isaiah in the Old Testament also wrote about this. In Isaiah 51 and verse six, we read, look up to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die like gnats, but my salvation will last forever, and my righteousness will never be shattered. And of course, Jesus talked about this as well in Matthew 24 and verse 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Before this final judgment is gonna take place, there's a judgment that takes place on the heavens and the earth that have been cursed by sin. And so this is the start of making all things new, but it begins with the removal of the old. Let's continue reading though in Revelation 20 and verse 12. I also saw the dead 
the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Now, let me stop for a moment and make this point that in the New Testament, we read about two judgments that are going to take place, not just one. And Christians are not going to face the judgment we're reading about here. We've talked about already the fact that we have already joined with Christ. We've already gotten our new bodies. We are reigning with Christ in his millennial kingdom. At the same time, there is a judgment that we are going to undergo. And I think this is a judgment that's going to take place when we meet Christ in the air. Our judgment, though, is not a judgment that determines our eternal destiny. Ours is a judgment that determines the rewards we are going to receive for the way we lived our lives on this earth. We'll be judged according to our deeds, but it's not a judgment that results in our eternal destiny. It's a judgment that determines the rewards we're going to receive. And so in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 36, we read actually about the two different judgments. We read Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 we read, for we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, and some of your versions put this, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Now some of your versions say whether good or bad, but worthless is the right idea here. Our judgment is going to be a judgment related to rewards based on the things we did in this life, the things we've done out of our love for God, things we've done because we're Christians, because we love Jesus Christ, things we do that are an outflow of our walk with Christ, things we do out of true motives. These are the things that are going to be rewarded. But things that we do that are out of false motives, things we do, for example, to be seen by other people, things we do that are selfish in nature, not to glorify Christ, these are things that will be deemed worthless when Christ comes back. But the judgment we're going to face is not the same as those who, who, who don't know Christ are going to face. We have been ones who are covered by the blood of Christ. Jesus was judged in our place. Now, Daniel talked about both kinds of judgments. In Daniel 12, 2 and 3, we read, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Part of the reason that I'm very, very passionate about the gospel is 
and leading people to faith in Christ and leading people to righteousness is this verse right here. I don't know exactly what it means to shine like the stars in heaven, but I think that's something I want to be true about me. Now, Jesus said this about the unrighteous in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So going back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 20, and again, we're not even there, I think, during this judgment, except perhaps that we're part of the judges. But in verse 12, we read, I also saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Now, I want to mention that there are two types of books that are mentioned here, and you may wonder why. One of them is, is a book of our deeds. It says the books are open that reveal the deeds, the deeds of those who are standing there, not us, but others. But then there's a second kind of book that's called the book of life. And the chapter ends with these words. It says here, if a person's name is not in the book of life, they will be cast into hell. And so you say, why are there two different books? Why not just say, well, if a person didn't put their faith in Christ, they're not going to go to heaven. Well, I think it's because the books of our deeds reveal what we are. It reveals the fact that we are, or, or they were, anyway, sinners separated from God. It's what Jesus was getting at when he said, a tree is known by its fruits. Now, the book of life, I think, is a book where anyone who puts their faith in Christ, they, they, they will be in the book of life. And so, Christ, of course, he looks at the book of life, he sees someone's name is not there. And then you look at the, the book of deeds, and it's our deeds that indict us. It's our deeds, or their deeds anyway, again, that reveal that they didn't know Christ. It's, like, like, it's almost like every sin a person committed because they were not forgiven is recorded in the books. And when you take the sum of all those deeds, you say, God is just to judge this person. Their deeds reveal they're a sinner. We sin because we're sinners. And this is the fruit of their life. And so, when I look at the two books, I think what's happening here is you look at the books of a person's deeds and they indict a person as being a sinner, a person separated from God. But then you look at the book of life and you say, well, was the person saved then? Even though they did these things, is their name in the book of life? Because if it is, then they've been forgiven and their name is not in that book. And so because of both books, because of their deeds and the fact that their, their name is not in the book of life means that they're going to be separated from God for all eternity. And so we continue in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 20. Then the sea gave up its death, dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead. All were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, right now, when people die, they, they don't know Christ. They go to this place called Hades. Uh, in the Old Testament, it was called Sheol. It's the place of the dead. It's a temporary holding place. But we discover when you get to this final judgment that Hades is going to be judged. All those in it are going to be cast into this lake of fire. And then we read also that death itself is going to be judged. 
In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26, we read, the last enemy to be abolished is death. And so what we're reading about here in chapter 20 is really the death of everything bad, and it is setting up the events that are going to take place in the next chapter in Revelation chapter 21. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the fact that we do not have to participate in this judgment. Because your son Jesus was condemned in our place and for our sin, those of us who have put our trust in him will have eternal life. And we look forward to that day when we'll see you face to face. And we want to live in such a way that our deeds glorify you, that we want to hear from your lips, well done, good and faithful servant. We express, O oh Lord, a desire to want to reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.